Hi everyone, I'm Utkarsh, the CEO of Network Capital, along with Mukund, uh, a friend, a mentor, and an author who, we, who we've hosted before. Today we are here to discuss his latest book, which focuses on ESG. We're going to discuss why he wrote the book, the timing, and the broader messages uh, he covers along with his co-author. So welcome to Network Capital, Mukund. Uh, how are you doing? How are things? Very good. Thank you, Utkarsh. Thanks for having me on this program. Uh, all good at my end. A uh, fair amount of travel now seems to have restarted uh, in the wake of the third wave of COVID. So fingers yeah. crossed that we've seen the worst behind us in India and people can get back to some level of normalcy soon. So the pandemic seems to be a busy time. You've written a book. How did that happen? <laughs> well, the, the, the first lockdown, which was March of 2020, uh, so now two years back, uh, saw me in the hills in uh, the south of India, the Nilgiris. And um, once it was clear that one would have to stay put for a period of time, uh, I just treasured that opportunity to start writing. And I'd already been doing a lot of research on the whole subject of ESG, this new thematic of environment, social and governance that has captured, I think, imaginations of investors and multiple stakeholders around the world. And I decided why not uh, convert a lot of my learning and appreciation of the subject into something that becomes more widely available to audiences. Uh, and of course, uh, working from home uh, made a big difference in the amount of time one could commit to writing. So did that with my co-author who was based in Delhi. We we didn't actually see each other till the book came out. So it was quite a interesting experience, but we were able to share all our notes with each other and have regular calls. And of course, with the publishers, HarperCollins. And I'm told it is probably the first book on ESG to appear in the Indian market. So delighted that one could make some contribution and look back at the COVID period, not just with uh, anxiety and apprehension for the things that went on at that time, but also something positive, hopefully, that came out of that. Yeah. So ESG has been a constant in your career, right? Be it at Tata, mm -hmm. um, the investment work that you do at EQ, and now with this book. So tell us uh, a bit about ESG, the fundamental construct of it, and why should people care about it? It's a great point you make. I'll just come to your question in a moment, but uh, this is something we've talked about uh, previously as well, connecting the dots through your career. Sometimes we don't really understand what we're being set up for. Uh, you might ascribe it to fate. You might ascribe it to something else. Uh, people say that, uh, you know, the prepared mind is better <laughs> able to sort of receive chances and convert them into success. So in my case, it goes all the way back to my master's and doctoral dissertation on the politics of the environment. And when I came back to India after my master's and doctorate and joined the Tatars, I wasn't necessarily sure that the environment would be part of my life going forward. But fast forward 25 years and with existential crises like climate change upon us, it's certainly very much a part of one's life. And as rightly said, uh, more recently, I think my years with the Tatas, uh, towards the end when I spent time as the chair of the Tata Global Sustainability Council, 
or as chief ethics officer with a, a remit to look at corporate governance of the Tatas. All of that obviously was uh, squarely in the center of the ESG debate. So yes, uh, coming to why this issue is now upon us and why it's important. Uh, first, of course, is uh, you know baseline. Where are we as a market, as a society, as an economy on each of the dimensions of ESG? And the fact is, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, you look at the environmental crises that you see around us, whether it is air pollution in the national capital region, uh, whether it is concerns around climate change. You look at the social dimension, issues around the very poor gender diversity quotient in the Indian workplace, or the induction of uh, representatives of the scheduled caste and scheduled tribe communities in the power structure in the corporate world, uh, or whether you look at the governance dimension. I mean, not a day passes by when you don't see some fresh scandal and some issues where uh, you know the high and mighty have been laid low and some of the greatest brands that corporate India has produced have suddenly been felt. So there is clearly a set of challenges. But why is this new and why is ESG now beginning to occupy top of mind for investors? And I think there are uh, several factors behind this. Firstly, you could argue that it's not necessarily very new. All of this has been with us for uh, a long time. But I think what has qualitatively changed uh, are a few factors. The first is the role of technology in making available information, in making stakeholders much better informed about exactly what is going on, uh, and the ability for government, the regulators, people who actually probe some of these issues to get to the bottom of what's actually going on, the audit trails that corporates leave, uh, the footprint that uh, corporates leave, is now, I think, it's much easier to track what's actually happening and come up with perspectives on whether the right thing is happening or not. So I think people are much better informed, stakeholders and regulators are now able to actually follow through on actions to actually test and then scrutinize and then take action if they see things are not going uh, the right uh, direction. Next, you've had, I think, a series of crises, one after the other, that have reminded people how important many of these agendas are. And as with, you get into each new crisis, the scale of impact, I think, is beginning to worry and bother a number of people. So uh, go back maybe 13 years to the global financial crisis, the sense that a very short-term approach was creating jeopardy in the global financial markets, and you needed much more of a long-term outlook. And so you had a number of efforts to try and address that. And obviously, on the regulatory front, uh, many new disclosure norms and requirements. Uh, then you've had a series of uh, issues that demonstrated the power of social media, the point I made about new information and way yeah. publics can act on that. You had the Arab Spring, you had the toppling of autocratic uh, regimes in some parts of the world and so on. Uh, fast forward to the last few years and you know the last three years, uh, the COVID situation is I think a demonstration uh, of, of the kind of black swan event that we're increasingly going to see a lot more about where nature really is revolting against the kind right. of impact that humankind is trying to create without any concern uh, for what could potentially happen. Uh, and of course, climate change. Uh, the latest report of the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC last month, suggests that we are way behind the kinds of targets that uh, we had set for ourselves. Uh, already in six years from 2015, the Paris Climate Treaty to 20. Uh, uh, 21 at Glasgow, 
uh, we've changed the targets that we need to be pursuing from two degrees to 1.5 degrees global warming before the end of the century. And the IPCC report of February shows that we're nowhere close to meeting the 1.5 degree target. And the implications are very, very grave uh, for India, for instance. There's talk that a large number of cities on the coastlines, including uh, my city currently, Mumbai, uh, could be under several feet of water before the end of the century. What that uh, implies in terms of displacement of communities and all the attendant issues in terms of impact on society, impact on families, impact on other issues such as uh, gender equality, etc., is is huge. So I think people are now beginning to appreciate that these kinds of events, uh, you need to be prepared for them. Uh, you need to do your best to avert them if possible, but you also need to be prepared to adapt. Uh, and I think all of this is now coming together at a point of time when humanity has some of the tools available to also find resolution for these problems. So I think the concerns around ESG are partly driven by all of this coming together. So better information, more technology, more concern that black swan events could pose existential crises, and also an understanding that we have the tools to potentially tackle these if you all come together with the right kind of outlook. So investors in particular, I think, are now leading the charge on this because they see the risks. There could be stranded assets, for instance, because of climate change. There could be businesses that fail. There could be manufacturing locations that are no longer viable because of issues around sea level rise. So investors don't want to put their money behind something that is going to fail very soon. And that's, I think, driving a lot more of the momentum now that you're beginning to see in the public markets and increasingly in the private markets. Today, uh, there's probably something like $43 trillion of sustainable investing that's already taken place. It accounts for around roughly half of all new investments in Europe and a quarter in North America. There are funds that have committed to following the United Nations principles for responsible investment, which focus on ESG principles, which in total are over $120 trillion. So I think big money is now demanding that corporates are responsive to these concerns around ESG. And I think they're looking at both sides of the coin. So one is the risk aspect uh, and therefore building resilience. The other is the opportunities. Out of climate change, you're seeing that it's not just about concerns about the future, but also business opportunities. You could get into renewable energy. That's becoming a big thematic now, investments right. in solar power, wind power, and so on. So I think you have the pluses and the minuses, and people, I think the smarter ones, are beginning to respond to all of this expectation that various stakeholders have. That's why it's becoming a really, really big theme around the world. Yeah. Just a quick note before we move to the next question, if people want to uh, learn more about connecting the dots and learning about uh, Mukund's career, the previous podcast, we'll, uh, we'll link it in the show notes. So tell us, Mukund, has ESG been an afterthought for businesses all these years? And uh, do you see that changing? You alluded to how investors are coming to fore and uh, putting their money in what they believe in. Um, but is ESG like core part of corporate strategy today? I think it's beginning to become a core part of certainly the more forward-looking corporations. Uh, and there are some that have been doing very good work on many of the critical aspects of each of ESNG. Uh, but I wouldn't say that there have been exemplars who have been outstanding in everything that they've done in the past. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that was perhaps lack of awareness, lack of information, lack of knowledge, and sometimes lack of technology that could help them to actually find the right uh, pathways uh, to doing better. 
But a lot of that now has changed. And some of that is being uh, given a sense of urgency by the public markets, by investors, by regulators. And so people are moving much faster uh, on some of those pathways today. Um, I think the best companies start with what I believe personally is the most critical issue, which is governance at the top. So governance of how you look at ESG issues, the kind of leadership and strategy you provide towards addressing both the challenges and the opportunity set. And so the best companies in India today look at uh, Airtel, look at Infosys. They now have ESG committees at the board. So the ESG mandate is being driven right at the top. And then it's getting right. cascaded across the organization. And the best companies, I think, engage with multiple stakeholders to understand what they could be doing better. And this is like the quality uh, revolution maybe 20 years back. It's a journey. There's no end point where you say, I have arrived and now I'm perfect on ESG. It's like you can never say I'm perfect on quality. There's always something better that you can do. So I, I think companies are now seeing that this is the way to, to move forward. On the regulatory side, particularly in India, I think we're also benefited by the fact that the Securities Exchange Board of India, the markets regulator, has now required that from this year on a voluntary basis and next year on a mandatory basis, the top 1,000 listed companies, so the role models for the rest of corporate India, have to produce what is called a business responsibility and sustainability report, the BRSR. And I think right. with that mandate, now companies are being forced to put out in the public domain their ESG narrative, their policies, and the way they're approaching the entire subject. And I think that will open them up to much greater scrutiny in the future. And I think the best companies will be recognized and rewarded for doing well. The lousy ones, I think, should be prepared now to pay a big price because there will be naming and shaming and potentially investors who pull their investments from these kinds of companies. Yeah, again, the role of investors become uh, becomes at the forefront. So you talk about uh, four important drivers of success in implementing the agenda. I noticed in the tone of the top, so that's clearly changing. That was one. Then investing in people in the organizations. Could you elaborate a bit more about that uh, and any other point that you want to make in actually implementing the ESG stuff? So, you know, every organization, uh, you know, in its advertising or it's in in-house communication will say our people are our greatest strength and right. we believe yeah. in, in our people, our people are our best brand ambassadors, so on and so forth. And that's actually true uh, because without your people, I mean, what is it that you can produce as a product or a service? And yet, actually, very few companies have the... Uh, uh, maybe the, the focus to really actually invest in their people and make sure they're prepared for both the existing and future potential challenges and that they treat them well. Uh, so in our book, we, we talk about the fact that there are so many organizations where uh, the tone of the top is not good, uh, very hierarchical, where people are not actually consulted or involved in the plans right. that the organization makes. Uh, so I think it's very, very important to carry your people with you. On the other hand, if you can actually do a really good job of uh, employee engagement, of motivating uh, your, the talent that you have and preparing them better for the future challenges, investing them, investing in their training, uh, then you get the best results. And I think in the Tata Group, where I worked for, for two and a half decades, uh, one saw that in practice. Um, now, there are various tools that companies have to get employees more involved. And one of these tools we talk about in the book is actually the Indian policy on CSR and corporate social responsibility. 
now there is a mandate uh, for companies that meet a size and scale test to spend 2% of the net profits on corporate social responsibility. Very few companies actually bother to involve their employees in how this money is spent. Now, right. you have to spend the money. It's a mandatory requirement. It's the simplest thing to actually consult and involve your own people in how it's spent. Even better, if you could get them to volunteer and participate in how the capital gets deployed and allow them to participate in the strength of their own skill sets. So let me give you an example. If, let's say, you're a software company like TCS, it makes a whole lot of sense to get a few TCS youngsters uh, as part of a CSR effort to also work, let's say, you're funding local hospital to work with the hospital to create an MIS program that's much better than maybe anything they currently have uh, in order to provide the best information to the doctors and the superintendents of the hospital. It uses the talent of your own people, gives them a sense of mission about how their work could be useful to the community and is linked with the kind of spending that you're anyway undertaking. Those then deliver, I think, the best results because your employees feel proud that they're working for an employer who has a social conscience. They feel involved and associated with the value creation that's taking place for society. Now, in the Tatas, of course, we were greatly helped, I think, by the philosophy of a founder, Jamsuji Tata. He had this famous quote, which you'll see uh, hanging on the walls of many Tata enterprises and offices, when he said, in a free enterprise, the community is not just another stakeholder in business, but is in fact the very purpose of its existence. And if you think about it, there's a profound wisdom in that statement. Without a successful society, without a successful community, a company cannot have successful customers. It can't have successful investors who will back it. Uh, so you really need to think about the welfare of those around you if you yourself want to be a sustainable entity for the long term. And that's essentially at the heart of what ESG is all about. So going back to your point, I think if you want a successful ESG action plan in your company, the place to start with is obviously there has to be a mission and a sense of strategy that is directed right at the top where the levers of power and the sources of capital rest, starting with the board. But then you need to get the rest of the workforce to be aligned so that they're all sort of uh, singing from the same hymn book and you're having a collective impact, which is much greater than just a few people in the organization knowing or talking about the subject. Uh, and this is true about any aspect of strategy, honestly. It doesn't just have to apply to ESG. It's the way in which you roll out an ethics program. It's the way in which you roll out new targets, a sales plan for the, the next year. Uh, right now, everyone is focusing on finishing our budgets for next year as the new fiscal kicks in in India. It's all the same concept of getting alignment within the organization because collectively you're much, much stronger than trying to approach some of these challenges individually. Yeah, definitely. What is materia materiality, Mukund? You talk about it in the book in the second chapter. So, you know, one of the things that very quickly, uh, you know, uh, dissuades uh, corporate managers from learning a bit more about ESG is, oh God, it looks so vast. There are so many different parameters in environment. There's air, there's water, there's waste. Uh, on social, there are so many different things we need to think about. Uh, from your pay strategy towards uh, the kinds of people you employ and so on, uh, on the governance aspect, independent directors, committees of the board. I mean, it's such a vast set of issues. Uh, you know, let's just leave it to the board or to the managing director or a few people in the company to worry about. And that's actually wrong because the fact of the matter is 
it isn't a vast subject a lot of it is common sense some of it is already defined by regulation right and the critical elements where you can make a difference actually relatively few sets of issues that matter to your business and so materiality in a sense is uh, simply a way of saying that look out for the issues from an esg perspective that particularly impact your industry your business and they will vary from business to business so there's not a one size fits all and you don't have to worry about as some organizations currently doing measuring over 700 input data streams to come up with an esg score for an organization we are saying look even half a dozen material issues if you can address them in a given period of time you're already making very very good progress on the broader esg agenda so what could these issues be now let's say you're a manufacturing company let's say you're a company in the steel sector uh, if you're using a blast furnace which means very high temperatures you're probably using coal uh, and therefore the climate impact is going to be very large carbon emissions will be a big part of the challenge you face in that industry but let's say you're in another industry you're in web design services you're an IT firm it's not going to be something that is going to be particularly dramatic in the way you actually impact the environment maybe your issues are much more to do with how you manage your workforce and the people around you that's going to be maybe much more material esg issue for you so materiality simply urges people to look at uh, the few sets of issues that particularly impact their business and their industry and these are not the same across companies so don't lose heart if you think that esg is a vast subject it it can be a vast subject but to start on that journey you know a journey of 1000 miles starts with a single step so start with just understanding what are the critical drivers of success in your particular business and then take it from there and those drivers of business i mean i would counsel people that don't look for more than half a dozen to start with uh, and focus on the half dozen issues you think are critical drivers of success do a good job on those benchmark yourself with the best peers in in india and then perhaps the world and then see how you're making progress and then take on more issues after that so is this a broad understanding in the government among the top uh, among activists etc that materiality is going to be beneficial overall or are there are there fears that if people are not very precise about 700 metrics things can fall apart no i think everyone understands that we need to have a common uh, language around what needs to be measured and how it gets disclosed and presented right so in fact uh, sebi for instance on the business responsibility and sustainability reports has put out a guidance note which i think is a very good note because they've talked about uh, the fact that there are two kinds of uh, indicators that they want to hear from companies about um, and these indicators would include essential indicators and leadership indicators so they're giving space to companies uh companies that are more evolved will want to disclose on the leadership paradigm but companies that are a little less evolved in that space will at least disclose on the essential uh, indicators so i think there is an understanding that you need to give people time it is a journey they're going to evolve it will take uh, its own sort of uh, time before they're ready uh, and i think that understanding exists the other thing that's very critical is there are a number of different frameworks that can be used to make disclosures and i think that again can be a little frustrating for companies particularly the ones uh, who have different sets of investors asking for different kinds of reports uh, there is right. integrated reporting there is uh, the global reporting initiative gri uh, 
So uh, I think there, uh, probably your best bet is try and produce a world-class BRSR report, which in any case is mandated for the Indian public markets. And then if you have the bandwidth or the capacity, produce these other reports. Uh, but over time, the hope is that one universal framework will emerge. There is already work that is happening by an organization called the International Sustainability Standards Board, which was created, uh, it was announced at Glasgow at COP26 uh, four mm -hmm. months back. Uh, the work that they are doing, I think, in the next one or two years will lead to one universal framework, which will then just make the language of uh, representation and disclosure uh, uniform across the world, and therefore things will become much easier. Got it. Um, talk to us about media and the role it has played, both social media and mainstream media, in shaping general attitudes towards uh, the subject. And how do you how do you think it'll change in the years to come? So uh, I think media has a tremendously important role to play. We have an entire chapter in the book on the role that media can play. Yeah, and we've given one. examples of uh, you know what has happened in the past. So I mentioned the Arab Spring a little while back. A lot of the Arab Spring was driven by the first use cases, if you will, of uh, getting community action uh, going through social media engagement. Uh, and you're seeing that uh, on a number of issues, take the hashtag MeToo movement. Uh, I think that was brought to the fore because of the relevance and use of social media. So I think going forward, the fact that people are much better informed, can compare and exchange notes, and can drive action if they care deeply enough about an issue means that on some of the ESG challenges, corporates are going to face a huge amount of scrutiny. It's like living in a fishbowl. Uh, the minute somebody senses there's something a little amiss, the word is going to get around really fast. And I think in that sense, social media has had a very, very important role to play. The more conventional media, uh, the newspapers, for instance, the television news channels, I think many of them have a very important role to play in precipitating some of the key issues of our times and ensuring there is a conversation discourse that takes place and trying to get policymakers to engage with this. I think particularly an issue like climate change, if it is an existential issue that is going to impact us and we haven't already started taking urgent action, I think the conventional media with their analysis, with the editorials, the op-eds, have an ability to influence parliamentarians, legislators, to try and get action going sooner than later. And I think that's a very, very important role. There is a social agenda here uh, that the media has to play a role in influencing and driving. So uh, I think hugely important role of media. Um, a lot of the lifestyle-related issues also increasingly are being influenced by what people are hearing about things happening, trends happening in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. And again, the media has an important responsibility in showcasing how people are finding solutions to problems all across the world. Uh, the prime minister at Glasgow, you know, came out with this uh, phrase that he said, life, lifestyle for environment. And we often ask ourselves, right, uh, why isn't the government doing enough or why aren't corporates doing enough or why aren't the courts punishing uh, people are stepping out of line. And yet we very conveniently often ignore the fact that at the end of the day, a lot of the materialistic consumption that impacts issues around environment, for instance, is happening at the level of the individual. If each one of us could change ourselves and change our modes of consumption, for instance, it could make a lot of difference. So that concept of lifestyle for environment, again, I think is something that the media 
to play a very important role in educating, informing, and influencing change. So I think hugely important role that uh, the media can has played in the past and will need to play in the future. Yeah, is there a generational angle to it? Are millennials and Gen Zs more attuned towards taking care of these causes? Um, is there any data on that? There is. I think there's uh, emerging data that suggests that certainly Gen Z and uh, to a lesser extent perhaps millennials care deeply about the quality of the environment uh, that is going to be left for them to enjoy in the coming decades. Um, there is a sense that the previous generation has you know, screwed up a lot of uh, the world for uh, the use of subsequent generations. Um, on issues like volunteering, I can uh, testify to the data we had from the Tatas, for instance. Uh, we used to run these volunteering programs in the very first year that we launched it, which was probably 2014, uh, we had 100,000 signups. The vast majority of them were what you might describe as Gen Z millennials, uh, the younger part of the millennial crowd. Uh, and these are people who uh, I think greatly appreciated the fact that an employer like Tata's was asking them to spend more time on social causes outside of the workplace uh, and to work with nonprofits. So my sense is very much that the older generation uh, is still a little bit, you know, we all grew up uh, at a time when India had a scarcity economy. Uh, life wasn't that simple. Uh, earning an income was not the easiest uh, task. You didn't have much job opportunity. So you try and hold on to a lot of those. I think the current generation uh, of, of young people entering the workforce, much more willing to take risks, much less wedded to a job for life. Uh, certainly not interested in working in a hierarchical organization right. where the boss man is going to keep yelling orders and expects everyone else to just shut up and listen and where dissent is not tolerated. I think people will not stand for that kind of work environment much, much longer. And they want more out of life for themselves. Doesn't necessarily mean that they have all the answers either, but it does mean that their expectations from employers, I think, is qualitatively different uh, from the previous generation. And therefore, also their sense of the quality of life they want, uh, including the environment around them, is of a, a scale and an order that's very different from our time. A question that um, I try and explore in my next book, and it left me wondering when I read this uh, as well, is that now that many people are out of jobs or many people have lost jobs, will that impact their perception of ESG? Will it become even stronger now that they realize, you know, that pandemics can happen and black swan events are real, um, or they'll be so caught up in the quest for finding any source of employment that uh, the whole the, the shift takes place. I'm not sure of the answer, um, but it's a question that I think about a lot. I think um, there's probably a different answer for this question for countries like India. Uh, compared yeah. to what you might have in some of the more developed Western countries. And a lot of the answer, I think, has to do with the advent of technology. Uh, you're already seeing that in, in many uh, areas of work uh, where safety is an issue, uh, where the quality of, of work is not great, technology is now beginning to uh, displace perhaps the need for human intervention. Uh, there are places where this is probably very, very good uh, for it to happen. For instance, mining, coal mining, where you can be breathing unsafe 
particulate matter and working in very unsafe conditions. Mine collapses are not uh, a novelty in India. Unfortunately, safety is a major issue. It would be great to use more robotics and automation. But what it's going to imply is a whole lot of people are going to be out of work uh, because you're using machines. So uh, there is this uh, sort of fine line you're walking uh, perhaps for the next 10 or 15 years before you achieve uh, uh, acceptable balance between automation uh, and other influences on the quality of work and the need to keep jobs and incomes protected. Uh, and that's part of the reason, by the way, going back to your earlier question about the role of the media, we need to have these conversations about what will society accept just now. If you start shutting down stuff wholesale because it's problematic for the environment and then it curbs growth and it displaces people from work and it stops income generation possibilities, you may be actually creating an even bigger problem in terms of social challenges and strife. So there has to be a balance and political parties are obviously best placed to navigate some of that balance that needs to be achieved. But we need to be hearing about these discussions in parliament, in the legislatures and so on. So uh, I think there is uh, going to be a school of thought that, you know, some of these considerations around environmental protection in particular, uh, you know, can wait. <laughs> uh, let's first solve for the problem of food in people's bellies before we start taking on too much of that. But there is another school of thought that says, look, if we can use technology intelligently, you can actually have a win-win where there are other jobs being created. Uh, I mean, take, for instance, the point we made about coal mining. Uh, if you stopped coal mining gradually, uh, and an entity like Coal India, for instance, uh, essentially went out of its conventional uh, way of business, but you persuaded, deploy some of its profitability, and it's hugely profitable, by the way, it's one of the largest payers of income tax in this country. Yeah. You pushed it to actually get much more into renewables. Could you create an alternative set of livelihoods for the same workforce now putting up rooftops on our panels all across the territories that they already command here for their mining activity, for instance? So there could be potential solutions. Maybe some of that has to be financed. Maybe for some of that you need new technology. But those, I think, can be sourced and can be found. So I think we are at this interesting juncture where technology can offer you a lot of the solutions, but you need to harness the, the human impact and the implications currently for that transition period on you know, currently existing skill sets uh, and prospects for people. And you need to take them into confidence. This goes back to our first question about employee engagement. How do you involve yeah. the people who are going to be impacted in the conversations and the new solutions you're going to find for doing things differently? So I think there's a way out, but a lot of responsibility, therefore, on regulators and government and legislators uh, to try and have the right conversations and ensure people are on board before the changes are made. No, true that. One of the things that I loved about the book is that uh, it looks at ESG in terms of systems thinking. It's not just looking at it from one lens. Uh, so I'd like for you to connect the dots between uh, corruption, uh, funding of elections, and ESG formulation. <laughs> so since the book is a lot about what happens in India, uh, and one has talked about in the book, you know, uh, the sense of optimism about the future and whether Indian companies rise up to the challenges uh, in good time. Um, and 
The fact is, unfortunately, too often, I think Indian companies have been quite content to, in a sense, milk the system. Uh, maybe those are very strong words, but there have been enough examples of that. Uh, two, three years back, the chief economic advisor actually came out with an economic survey which had a significant trust on the perils of crony capitalism, which yeah. we've seen enough and more of. And a lot of examples are given by the government uh, in that document on crony capitalism. So we have suffered from this in the past uh, in India. And, you know, if corruption becomes endemic, if it seeps into people's way of life, if you start thinking that for everything there is an easy solution or a quote-unquote jugaad that can be found to work your yeah. way out of the problem simply by influencing a policymaker or a bureaucrat, I think it becomes very, very corrosive. I would go to the extent of arguing that India's very poor spending on research and development. You know, we spend something like 0.7% of the GDP on R&D, and that's been pretty much static for three decades, even though we supposedly liberalized and opened up to the world three decades back. That number hasn't changed much. Uh, you compare that with China, uh, which is three times that number, and on a much larger GDP base, uh, it's much lower than the United States, much lower than Japan, much lower than Germany, countries that are reputed for the quality uh, of world-class innovation that takes place in those geographies. And I would suggest that part of the reason for that is because there was little incentive for Indian companies to want to do better because you could get around uh, a lot of the stuff that you would otherwise have to do to be successful by simply buying off some bureaucrat and getting a license to do something. So uh, that, I think, is one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is why does government permit this? Because after all, you think government would want uh, higher revenues, a more prosperous uh, community, uh, higher taxes that they can then spend on right. more public work. And there's a virtuous cycle it could create. And unfortunately, uh, as we described in the chapter on the state and corruption in India, part of the challenge is that not uh, all individuals in politics and not all political parties necessarily have this, uh, you know, uh, in a sense, enlightened view of what needs to happen with the nation and its growth prospects. Many of them are in politics and see it as a business, as a way to make money and actually profiteer from some of these ways in which you can twist rules and regulations uh, and through corruption earn much faster and much more than you would if you have to make an honest living. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, they are putting the squeeze on corporates. Now, where does this become most relevant? Because most relevant when elections are going to happen and the political parties need funding in order to fight the elections. And so the squeeze becomes a little stronger as you get closer to elections. And we're seeing that in India. In the last general elections, we apparently spent more money on an Indian election than the United States spent on the US presidential election. Now, the standard of living and the revenue, uh, the GDP in the United States is many fold the times of India. Can a poor country like India afford to spend the same amount? It just beggars belief, right? So we're trying to then connect those dots and say that corruption has been endemic. It has impacted the willingness to take risks and earn an honest living for a lot of corporate India. It has created this unholy nexus between politicians, bureaucrats, and some elements in the corporate world. 
and neck neck it has left the country worse off and spending amounts of capital which we don't have which have to be recovered eventually and will happen through more corruption and therefore it is a huge huge problem for this country if we don't resolve that and things aren't getting much better india still ranks in the mid 80s in the transparency international index of the most corrupt nations in the world so uh, it is going to create long term problems the good news is there are questions being asked as even a political party as we know the awadmi party which came up on the back of a lot of these discussions and debates about corruption all the political parties now will at least on the face of it say the right things about controlling corruption we'll have to see whether they walk the talk but i think the public needs to be much better informed that the sunholy nexus has taken a huge toll and will continue to take a toll on india's capability of addressing some of these esg challenges including environmental challenges you keep hearing about rules being broken and flouted and then the next set of floods that happen in states like uttarakhand and so on because of corrupt practices in the way people are allowed to build alongside river beds and so on so we'll see these issues continuing unless we actually put a lid on corruption in this country mukund how are companies communicating to their shareholders about what they stand for and is there scope for improvement have have companies by and large in india done a decent job of that i think it varies from company to company uh some do a better job than others i think the public markets disclosures now will help because there is going to be a certain amount of uh, essential hygiene factor that is going to be built into the reportage in the past uh, it wasn't very clear who was monitoring what was getting disclosed and so you had very variable information that is being provided to the public now i think with the sebi uh, guidance notes you will see a little bit more standardization and you'll see a bit better quality i think in the reportage that you'll see emerging across the board from most companies uh, i think the best companies have also utilized their csr spending to tell a good story about what it is that they concerned about uh, in terms of social issues and commitments uh so using your sustainability report using your csr reports using your annual reports to communicate better with your stakeholders i think the best companies do a really good job of that but many other companies can take a cue from that and do better communication in some ways is actually the easiest part of the challenge right at least telling people what you stand for what you're looking out for what you'd like to do better uh, i often give the example of some of these net zero commitments that we keep hearing about in the context of the climate change issue right nobody is expecting you to change the world overnight if you look at the net zero promises that most large companies around the world have made they're out in time uh, unilever for instance says 2039 is when they will achieve net zero that's still 17 years away so nobody is expecting you to promise and show that you're going to change the world overnight but what they are expecting is starting with Uh, a sense of mission a sense of purpose uh, the kinds of values that you espouse your broad set of ambitions and what it is that you're going to try and do and it doesn't have to be done in a year or two it can be done in 16 or 17 years also but they need to hear that story and not too many companies are very good at that kind of communication what it is that mm. we really stand for and what is it that we are setting out as ambitions for ourselves uh, so i think you'd like to see a bit more of that uh, in the indian markets but i think it's beginning to happen we're beginning to see some very good uh, uh, information and reportage that's starting to happen i think uh, from the larger corporates for sure 
and more of the smaller corporates are following. And at the end of the day, for many of them, there's a strong incentive. You do a good job, you're able to attract patient capital that likes your story and that stays invested and influences the retail market as well. I mean, there's, there's nothing to lose, right? If you can do a good job of communication. Yeah. Is this what you refer to as codifying conduct? No, codifying conduct is really about uh, the way in which you actually hold out a promise to all your stakeholders uh, about your commitments and the responsibilities you will execute um, in your interactions with them. And this is really to do with the codes of conduct that companies have in place. Uh, in India, if you're in the public markets, there are certain codes of conduct uh, around issues like insider trading, etc., that you already require to have. But many companies have not thought fit to create um, a sort of bespoke code of conduct that speaks to who they truly are, uh, that reflects their mission statement, uh, their core purpose, who they are and what they stand for, their core values. Those kinds of codes of conduct are relatively fewer. Um, and we've, of course, in our book talked about uh, sample codes of conduct, which are very easy to adopt with some of the industry associations, for instance, have put out. But I think if you're, if you're an organization uh, that wants to have long-term success, that wants to be around hopefully 100 years from now, to try and build the culture, you need to start uh, really explaining to all your stakeholders, starting with your own employees, who it is you are and what you stand for, right? And the code of conduct is the best place to uh, capture all of that commitment, that sentiment about you as an organization, uh, why you exist. Would the world be better off with you around or without you around? Uh, you need to convince people that you're there for them. The example I gave of the Tata Group earlier, the sense that a successful community, a successful customer, successful shareholders is important for a business to own success uh, meant that in the Tata Code of Conduct, we had commitments to all of our stakeholders, including government, including lenders, a commitment to the environment. All of that was captured. Once you do that, then it becomes much easier to uh, win the confidence, win the trust of your stakeholders. And it's when you do that, that you really can aspire to true success in business. Got it. So should there be mandatory codes of conduct or stewardship codes of conduct? See, I think beyond a point, uh, government can't tell people how to behave, right? And we've seen that you can have the best codes of conduct. In the book, we give the example of Enron. Uh, and then you, you collapse because nobody's actually following the code of conduct. So uh, the next step will be once you have a code of conduct, are people taking it seriously? What kind of training uh, takes place? What kind of investment do you make in educating all your stakeholders about it? How do you measure and monitor the effectiveness? There's no end to it, right? How much is a guardian uh, or a, a custodian of rules and regulations like the government going to monitor? Uh, ultimately, in a free market, you would want that everyone sees the self-interest in doing it. And there's as little oversight or supervision by elements of the government uh, in forcing you to do that. We already talked about corruption being a problem in India. The next thing, if you said the codes of conduct are going to be evaluated, I can see a few more, you know, greasy palms being put forward by bureaucrats who will threaten to punish you if you don't uh, sort of take care of them. So I don't think we want more regulation. I think what you mm -hmm. want is to persuade people that, look, this is in your own self-interest. If you want to stick around, if you're very short-term oriented, you don't care if you flame out in five years, as some of India's hitherto best-known brands in spaces like aviation and financial services have witnessed in recent years, then it's a different matter. But 
if you really care about creating a 100 year organization then these are things you should need to take very very seriously um do you think shareholder activism has a role to play here absolutely that's becoming i think really big um it's already there in a big way in many of the more developed markets uh, overseas i think in india it's beginning to happen and you're seeing evidence of that for instance in shareholder resolutions where uh, minority shareholders are overturning uh, resolutions that have been put forward by management on issues such as ceo compensation or re-election of senior directors and i think that's a very very good sign and a lot of this has been uh, fueled by a very interesting amendment that was made in the companies act in 2013 which said that on related party transactions a majority of the minority shareholders have to give a positive consent and what has that has done it has meant that any transaction where promoters are involved the majority of the minority shareholders have to give their consent so on issues like ceo pay if a promoter is being uh, paid something or is trying to enrich themselves more than be maybe warranted by market conditions the minority shareholders can block that or if there is a set of directors that the promoters are closely aligned with that they want to reelect the minority shareholders can say no if they think those directors have not uh, played their fiduciary responsibility and duty properly so i think there's more power in the hands of uh, small shareholders there are also other clauses uh, in the 2013 amendments including class action suits uh, you hear a lot about class action suits in markets like the united states india we haven't really tested the waters on that so far but i'm quite sure fairly soon there will be a set of very active shareholders who will take it upon themselves to file class action suits lastly you have activist investors who command significant amounts of capital in the book we've given the example uh, of elliot management which took yeah. on the it services industry in particular one company cognizant where it felt that there was a lot of cash on the balance sheet which could be returned to shareholders uh, in case there weren't better alternatives to deploying that they worked with cognizant initially there was fair amount of letter writing and uh, pressures of various kinds and eventually they persuaded the management to do a share buyback the first of many share buybacks between 2017 and most recently i think tcs share buyback in this period of time thanks to the efforts of elliot uh, the it services industry has returned cash of over 100000 crores to shareholders in india so you can see the power of uh, some of these uh, activists coming forward pursuing a single minded agenda and forcing the pace of change and i think in the future they will start collaborating with each other elliot did it on their own but in the future you'll see more elliots emerge and working in partnership or cooperation with other like minded investors also persuading minority shareholders on the retail side to work with them and force the pace of change on esg issues yeah i mean at eq investments and in general throughout your career you have uh... you've essentially been paid to make high stake important decisions uh, but we also live in the time of black swan events how do you how do you manage all of them with um, with the multiple priorities that needed to be taken care of financial returns esg um just being true to the unpredictability of things around uh, how do you as an individual make sense of the kind of world we're living in and what advice do you have for uh, fund managers ceos young professionals trying to live in a world with so many black swans 
uh, when it's difficult to make high stake decisions? So pressure and difficulty in uh, in strategic choices, I think, is has been there since the dawn of time. It's never going to go away. Um, and people just need to learn to live with that. But, you know, this phrase that uh, often comes up, uh, uh, doing well by doing good, <laughs> hmm. uh, is actually so, so uh, relevant to the whole ESG agenda. It has actually been proven to be correct. Uh, there's enough now research which shows that folks who take uh, ESG considerations seriously uh, tend to do better in a variety of parameters from the kind of employee engagement scores they have to the market outperformance compared to the peer group to the financial returns. So uh, I think that debate pretty much is uh, resolved, certainly for those who look at the data quite closely. Uh, what you need, therefore, is essentially to harness some of these uh, uh, senses of, of best practices and the right ESG principles and make that a part of the way in which you function and think about the future. And as I said, it, it uh, gives you a very good handle to both address uh, risk as well as opportunity. So, uh, you know, if, if you're going to stay wedded to the old ways of doing business and think that uh, there's only one way of doing stuff and you're not going to be bothered about many of these new trends that are impacting business, uh, you're going to be caught out and the market will find you out sooner than most. Uh, but if you can harness some of the changes that are taking place and look for opportunity to create value in the context of identifying companies, managers, uh, you know, trends that are going to support a much more uh, environmentally friendly, um, ESG friendly uh, set of doing things, uh, I think you're going to be in much safer ground. There will still be black swan events, which you can't predict, which you can't forecast, which you can't prepare for. But to come out of the issues that will be uh, seen when those events happen, I think if you've got a strong set of ESG principles around the way you manage your own business, may you manage your approach to others, other stakeholders, I think you'll, you'll have a much better chance of coming out on the other side more successful than others. So I think it's all about, you know, protecting your own interest. It's essentially your self-interest. That's why I go back to that comment, you know, doing well by doing good. Uh, if you have the right principles that will allow you to navigate many of these challenges, uh, then regardless of what what is going to sort of happen in terms of these black swan events, you're going to be in a much stronger position compared to your peer group in coming out on the other side more successful, little safer. Uh, will will you necessarily be protected in every situation? Hmm. Who can say? It's 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 uh, impossible to predict that. Uh, if you put up a plant as an entrepreneur today uh, on the coast of Gujarat, and 15 years from now you find that sea level rise has encroached upon that plant, uh, it's it's going to be very hard to do anything about it, right? But if you've started making the preparations, you've tried to look at de-risking that operation you have some backup plans, you know at what point the, the switch is going to be flipped so that you decide to move locations, uh, then at least you're a little better prepared. Will it necessarily save you when, you know, uh, extreme climatic event happens? I don't know. But at least you'll be much better prepared and you won't have the regret that you missed some of these signals or you didn't pay enough attention uh, to the ways in which you could have secured your future. So it's really about, you know, uh, your, your sense of what is sustainable development all about, 
and how can you prepare for the future in a way uh, that allows you to come out with at least all the things that you can control having been addressed. Uh, there will be things outside of your control which nobody can really do anything about, but at least the stuff that's within your control, do your best to harness that. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, this book is a strategy book about how companies, governments, uh, shareholders can look at their future through you know a more multidisciplinary lens. So that was the biggest takeaway for me personally. Mukund, is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't or any parting message that you have for our listeners who are obviously not just from India, but from around the world? Um, would love to hear that. Yeah, we covered a, a lot of ground, I think. Uh, all the major questions uh, came up. Um, really, uh, I think the one question which uh, I think all of us sort of grapple with is in these times of uh, anxiety, you're seeing what's happening uh, in terms of military conflict again in Central Europe. Um, in these times of great unpredictability, uh, the sense of the world of capitalism as we know it uh, and the change that is going through, uh, how is that going to uh, be influenced by some of these considerations around ESG and ways of doing business? Um, is it going to lead to an uh, uh, interesting new world where there will be a convergence of interests amongst different stakeholders uh, and where the sense of what is good for the community is far more widespread amongst all stakeholder groups. Uh, and therefore, corporates are not seen to be resisting or trying to dodge new regulation and uh, avert some of the consequences of that. And where profit sharing uh, happens on a much more equitable basis uh, than perhaps some of the uh, huge inequalities that we've seen created as a result of excessive concentration of, of power and shareholding in the hands of a few in many markets. So is there going to be a qualitatively different kind of capitalism that will emerge through these forces at work? Um, I think that's something on which the jury is out. Uh, there are folks who will say nothing's going to change. There are people who will say that, look at the debates that are taking place in the United States, uh, the home of the free market, if you will, uh, where uh, these are very, very serious issues and where there is currently talk of everything from the billionaire tax uh, to you know controlling excessive power in the hands of some of the tech firms, for instance. So I think there is going to be a set of very important conversations that will take place all across the world in different markets influenced by local considerations. Uh, I don't know how it's going to evolve in India. Uh, but I'd love to see more young people participating in the political process because ultimately my views in a democracy, uh, that is where these issues will have to be resolved. So the points we made about what could be a just transition for India, uh, a fair way for companies that currently are perhaps in difficult sectors, many of them will be small and medium enterprises. How do they come out on the other side looking as healthy and able to retain and sustain the jobs that they've already provided. Uh, is there a conversation going on about challenges that they might face uh, on ESG dimensions? And are young people involved in prosecuting those conversations through the party political system and through the legislature? That's something that, as I said, I don't have an answer to, but I'd love to see more people involved 
in helping us to find those answers. That's going to be, I think, critical for India's evolution as a democracy. And your book has, is a concrete step towards uh, that direction. Thank you very much, Mukund. Um, in the summer when I'm in Oxford, I'll be uh, making sure to find this book in your in the library. And I'll send a picture <laughs> from there. <laughs> thank you so much, Puskash. Uh, see you soon, and uh, thank you again for writing this book. It was inspiring, and uh, it uh, it has and will inspire a generation. See you soon. Thank you so much. I love this conversation. All power to you. Thank you.